Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, where we are devoted exclusively to the financial well-being of physicians and helping you achieve the financial freedom you deserve. This is your financial residency without the long hours and sleepless nights. Let's welcome your host and primary care physician for your finances, Ryan Inman. Welcome back, everyone. Really excited to have you here. Thank you again for joining us. Today, we're going to do the continuation conversation uh, that we were having last week called Winning Tactics for Finding the Right Insurance Policy, where we were talking with Larry Keller, founder of Physician Financial Services. Last week, we were talking all about term insurance, disability, the riders, what certain things mean, some definitions, and kind of giving you guys a good foundation knowledge on some of the insurance things that you need to be looking for and the products that are available to you. And as we were kind of going through it, I said, Larry, you know, we took a, a pause on the on the interview and I said, Larry, like there's a lot of questions here that I really want to talk about. And I think it'd be really neat for us to answer those, but I can't fit it all in one show. So we went back and forth and said, you know what, let's answer all of these questions that you guys have on a separate show. And so here we are, April's curbside consult is going to be with Larry and we're going to answer 11 questions that you guys called in with all pertaining to insurance, term, disability, and all that kind of great stuff. So without further ado, let's jump in and talk with Larry Keller, founder of Physician Financial Services, and answer your questions on today's show. And now it's time for the curbside consult. Larry, let's start with some of these term questions. The first question I have here for you is, how much term insurance does a physician need? And what could be a quick way that they could determine how much they actually need? So a good rule of thumb when it comes to term life insurance, being that it's a really inexpensive financial product, would be seven to 10 times gross income or a million dollars per survivor. You know, in either case, I think an absolute minimum should be a million dollar death benefit. And let's not forget about our non-working spouse. You know, he or she should be insured for at least a million dollars. On smaller policies, you know, there is an annual policy fee that's built in. And if the premium is small, that can actually make up a substantial percentage of the annual premium. So again, a good rule of thumb, million dollar death benefit, seven to 10 times gross income or a million dollars per survivor. And remember, you also cannot arbitrarily just pick a random number. Insurance companies are going to limit you to 20 to 30 times your gross income unless we have a real need for the coverage and we can explain that to the insurance carrier. Mm -hmm. Next question I have for term is, does age factor into how long you should get a policy for? I would say probably more than age factoring in would be the individual circumstances and, if applicable, ages of children. I mean, ideally, we'd like to get the kids out of college. So if I have no children now, and I'm married, and I was to buy a 20-year level premium term, and I was to have a child tomorrow, only one, that 20-year level term is not going to get my child out of college. If I plan on having more kids, that works against me, and my 20-year level premium term only becomes less valuable. So I like the idea of combining policies of either, say, a 20-year level premium term with a 30-year level premium term to allow for a higher initial death benefit and a lower premium cost. Or if I have no children at this point at all, and my plan is to have children, 
I'm probably just going to go out and buy a 30-year level premium term policy for either a million dollars or $2 million today. And then my plan would be to layer or ladder additional policies on top of it for a shorter duration. I might buy a 20-year level term on top of my 30-year level term. Premium rates are based on age, and the younger you are, the less expensive it is. The other thing you have to realize is certain companies use what's known as your age nearest birthday. And that means once you hit your half birthday, they round you up to your next highest age. Other companies use your actual age. And literally until the day before your birthday, you can lock in at your younger, less expensive age. So that might also impact pricing as well. And when you're speaking with your agent or you're doing your own online research, that could certainly be one of the difference underwriting premium classification aside. And I know that we're not mentioning any company names, but there's a ton of companies out there that do this stuff, that offer these products. How does one target these few firms? Or is it really just based on premium? This is the lowest cost for, let's say, that million-dollar, 20-year policy, and I go with them. A lot of it really is based on premium. You know, you might find that there's some extenuating factors like your family history might be taken into consideration and you'll qualify for the best category with one carrier and you might not qualify for the best category with another one. You might find that your goal is, in fact, to convert or switch from a term life insurance policy to some type of permanent life insurance policy. And there are better carriers for permanent insurance than there are others. So ideally, if that is your goal, you'd probably stick to a carrier that's more well-known for their cash value type insurance. And most of the time, you know, you might think, well, if I buy my coverage online, I'm going to do better because I'm going to avoid the insurance agent. I'm going to avoid the commission associated with my purchase. Well, the reality is the overwhelming majority of insurance companies do not sell direct to the public. And even though you might think you're buying online direct from the company, you're actually not. You're purchasing an insurance product from a licensed insurance agent that is going to be compensated for the sale of the product. And you may or may not talk to that individual again in the future. So my preference is to find someone that you like, that understands your individual needs, goals, and budget. And you know if you pick up the phone, you are going to get them. And that's usually going to be someone that owns a firm or has been in the insurance agent world for a long period of time that has a reputation that really wants to maintain the reputation that they have and they will be there for you when you need them. Very well said. So we're going to now switch over to some of the disability questions that I've kind of pulled from various sources here. I do want to kind of just give this overarching disclaimer that what Larry and I are talking about is, let's say, someone that's in the 30 to 40 years old, could be male or female, depending on the question. Obviously, it's not a male if we're talking about someone who's pregnant, but that is in good health. And we're not talking about any particular circumstances that you may have. So this is really, I just want to say it again, like we're talking generalities on some of these questions and obviously on Larry's answers here. So Larry, the first one we're just going to talk about is, how much disability coverage do I need? And do these supplemental plans transfer with employer? 
Well, yeah, a good general rule of thumb, if you're buying individual coverage and you only have an individual policy because you're self-employed, is 60% of income, at least at the lower income levels. And we will find that the percentage of your income that can be replaced drops substantially as you earn more income. And the insurance companies don't want to put you in a position where you'll be earning a higher income not working than if you continue to work. They also believe, rightfully so, that in most cases at the larger income levels, you have a more disposable income. And generally, none of these policies are going to be reduced should you collect under Social Security disability or workers' compensation. So if you go out and you buy an individual policy, we'll call it a supplemental individual policy, even if it has a discount via your employer, that discount is going to be permanent. That plan is going to go right along with you the same way you would take your luggage. A good rule of thumb is if you have employer-provided group disability insurance, the benefit is going to be taxable to you. So the individual insurance companies are going to discount what you have, knowing that you would have to pay tax on those benefits. You might also find that your employer-provided group long-term disability coverage does not cover any kind of shift differential, overtime, incentive pay, or bonuses. And all of these plans are going to have a percentage of your income that's covered up to a maximum monthly benefit. And this can vary tremendously from one institution to another. You might literally find, I'm going to get 60% of my salary with a $2,000 maximum. You might also find that I'm going to get 60% of my salary with a $32,000 maximum. So another good rule of thumb for those of you that are not residents or fellows, if someone comes to my website or calls me and asks me for a quote, and I ask you if you have other disability insurance, and you know you're an employee of a large employer or health system, I know the odds are very good that you do. You might not know you have this, but the odds are very good that I'm going to either know what you have or I'm going to tell you, you need to contact human resources. You likely have other long-term disability coverage, and we need to factor that in to determine the amount of individual coverage available to you. If you are in the situation where you have employer-provided group long-term disability coverage, now your total replacement ratio will likely be somewhere between 70 and 85% between the group insurance plan as well as your individual disability insurance plan. You said a great point there. So you're looking at what you have at work, and let's say it's 60% coverage. It's actually on your base pay. They don't include the bonuses or all the overtime or anything you would think, hey, this is my income. This is what I should be replacing. If they say 60%, it's all of this, but it's not. And that is probably the biggest misconceptions that I see with clients that are bringing me stuff is that they're thinking that it's covering everything when really it's only on their base pay. And that's where it's important to actually get a copy of the long-term disability certificate So we can see, in fact, what is covered and what's not. Some group insurance plans are going to cover those things. Other ones are not. Another enormous misconception is that physicians especially believe that their employer-provided group long-term disability plan is own occupation. I will say in the best-case scenario, it's not. It's usually going to say, we will consider you to be totally disabled if you're unable to perform one or more 
of the material and substantial duties of your occupation, and you have a loss of income of at least 20% compared to your pre-disability income. Well, what does that mean? This means if I'm a neurological surgeon and I'm diagnosed with an essential tremor and I can no longer perform neurosurgery, normally I would collect full benefits under an individual policy, assuming it was own occupation and assuming the occupational analysis played out to show that I really was performing the duties consistent with that of a neurosurgeon. Well, imagine if I'm a 35-year-old neurosurgeon that's diagnosed with an essential tremor and I can no longer work. I'm still really smart. I still have great ability, and I still know I'm going to be alive with a long career horizon over me, not necessarily practicing neurological surgery anymore because that is what I have lost. So what I decide to do is to go back to law school, and now I'm an MDJD, and I decide I am going to open up a law practice, and I'm going to specialize in asset protection, and I'm going to teach physicians how to best position their assets to protect against malpractice claims. And I make more money doing this than I ever did when I was a neurological surgeon. Well, how much would I collect under my group insurance plan? In my example, you'd actually collect nothing. And here's the reason. You have lost the ability to do one or more of the material and substantial duties of your occupation. You can no longer perform neurological surgery. But remember that and, and it said, and you have a loss of 20% or more of your income. In my example, I now have you earning more money practicing law than you were earning as a neurosurgeon. As a result of that, you will collect absolutely nothing from your individual policy. You no longer meet the definition of total disability. An individual plan does not have this. They have two separate and distinct definitions. One is the own occupation definition that generally says, if I can't perform the material and substantial duties of my occupation... Again, those are the duties that cannot be reasonably omitted and still allow me to practice within that specialty. I'm done. I'm going to receive my full benefit. There's nothing about income loss in there at all. The only time income loss would come into play is if my own occupation policy contained a residual or a partial disability benefit, and this would only be triggered if I was still able to perform my duties as a neurosurgeon. But because of my accident or sickness, I had to work fewer hours, see fewer patients, perform fewer procedures, and this caused a loss of income generally of 15 to 20% or more compared to my pre-disability income. So you could very likely have a situation where a client collects full benefits under their individual disability policy, yet they collect no benefits under their employer-provided plan which leads to something I get all the time. You know, Larry, I've gone through the plan. You've discussed it with me in detail. My employer-provided plan is not good. I don't want it. The answer is, if it's not a voluntary plan and you don't have the ability to waive the coverage and it's employer-provided, and likely the insurance company that's providing it to your employer requires 100% participation of the physician employees, you have no choice but to take it, and I have no choice, short of new in-practice limits, to take that into consideration and integrate and coordinate that with your individual policies. So the fact that you don't like the definition or you believe that that definition is inferior and makes it less likely for you to collect benefits essentially is meaningless. Mm. 
sticking with this kind of employer coverage concept, what if I have coverage and then I have an additional policy that I've gotten from a third-party provider, I happen to leave my job and my coverage goes up from, let's say, 50% to 70%, and now I've got too much coverage between what my new employer offers and the policy that I have, what do I do there? Because I can't be worth more disabled than I am working. How does that actually work? Believe it or not, you actually can be. And this is one of the few situations where if you had your individual policy and it was non-cancellable and guaranteed renewable, or even if it was guaranteed renewable only, and at the time of your application, you disclosed what your income was, what your other disability insurance was, and you were approved for this policy and you put the policy in force, the insurance company has no restriction in terms of what you can or cannot do in the future. So if you change employers and now your employer provides a more lucrative group long-term disability benefit and you end up in a situation where theoretically you are overinsured, you can legally collect full benefits under both policies as long as you meet the definition of total disability in each. Hmm. Now, by the same token, if you wanted to reduce your individual policy and the benefit associated with it... You could, but let's say you did that and now you change jobs again. Now that you've changed jobs, you've lost your group insurance and now you've gone to a private practice where there is just nothing available to you. Now you look to increase your individual coverage again, if that is an option, you're older and it's going to be more expensive. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend you just keep what you have. Are you overinsured in theory? Yes. Are you paying a premium for a higher benefit? Yes, but you can still legally collect on it, and it does give you more flexibility should you change jobs again in the future. Perfect. I think this segues really nicely into this next question is, what is actually considered disabled resulting in a payout versus something that is excluded? Well, ideally, disabled is you're unable to perform the material and substantial duties of your occupation or your medical specialty. So let's say we've got a surgeon diagnosed with an essential tremor. They can no longer perform surgery. The occupational analysis bears out that for the most part, they were a surgeon. And when they were not performing surgery, they were doing pre-op consultation and post-op follow-up. And that was incidental to the fact that they were a surgeon. Benefits would be payable. You know, what's not going to be covered? Something that would not be covered would be a specific exclusion that the insurance company during the underwriting process said, you know, you've had prior surgeries, you've had carpal tunnel repair, you applied for the policy shortly after that, and they specifically stated in the contract, we are not going to cover disability caused by or contributed to by either or both of your hands, wrists, or forearms. And there is clearly a demonstrable relationship between your current disability and your prior medical history that would not be paid. The other thing would be mental and nervous conditions. You know, if your policy has a 24-month lifetime maximum limitation and now you're disabled as a result of one of those causes and you do not meet the exception, you really cannot expect to get more than 24 months of benefits. And this is all going to be outlined in the contract that you actually sign when you accept the final policy and put it in force. So going through some of this disability stuff, I actually received a bunch of questions around elimination periods. Can you just quickly chat on what is an elimination period 
And how does changing that elimination period affect premiums? The elimination period or waiting period is simply the number of days that you need to be out of work, either totally unable to perform the main duties of your occupation, or partially you're still working in your occupation, but you've got a loss of income because you're working fewer hours, seeing fewer patients, or a combination of the two. The most common waiting period that's purchased is 90 days. And that means that from day 91 going forward, that's when benefits are accruing. If you were to switch the waiting period from 90 days to 180 days, in my opinion, you're waiting twice as long. There's a lot of disabilities that'll never make it to 180 days that will make it past the 90. The savings associated with that is about 10%. So someone that's young in their career that does not have an emergency fund and they don't have a significant amount of assets to adequately protect themselves against this, I would only recommend a 90-day waiting period. That's where you're going to find the overwhelming majority of policies purchased. By the same token, if the insurance company makes a 60-day waiting period available, so you're getting your money one month earlier, it could literally mean a 300 to 400% premium increase. So 90 days really is the sweet spot as far as waiting period or elimination period. Again, those are the days that you are waiting, literally a deductible of time before benefits become payable. So if you've got a 90-day elimination period, what do you do from day zero to day 90? Is short-term disability cover this through work? Or is there anything else that they could do to protect themselves or should they? Or is this, and I always look as, this is where your emergency fund kind of kicks in. You've got at least three months of expenses, but I'll let you kind of take it from there. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, you know, the emergency fund is crucial here. You know, usually you want to have three to six months of your living expenses put away into something that's liquid that can easily be converted to cash. Some hospitals or large institutions will make available a short-term disability plan. Generally, I have found that they're not a good value. And if you look at what you're paying in premium over a duration of time versus what you could potentially collect under it, it's not a very favorable ratio. That being said, if anyone's going to buy a short-term disability plan that's available, it's likely going to be a female, and it's likely going to be a female that either is thinking about getting pregnant or is actively trying to get pregnant. For the guys, typically not a great value at all. Speaking of being pregnant, let's say that we had a female, and again, 30 to 40 that's listening and we're talking general, is it better to get disability before they have their kids? Or is it better to wait until everything's done and postpartum's done? Because I know there could be some exclusions on there. How, How does that actually work? If they're actually pregnant at the time of application, think of it as a pre-existing condition, no insurance company is going to say, sure, we will medically underwrite you. And in the event something happens, pregnancy, complications of pregnancy, spontaneous abortion, voluntary abortion, we would love to pay you. They're going to say, congratulations, but you were pregnant before you ever came to us. We do not want to be on the hook for significant amounts of money for a condition that you had before you were insured. So if you are currently pregnant, there's going to be an exclusion rider, which is where the insurance company says we will not cover any disability related to or caused by pregnancy, voluntary abortion, spontaneous abortion, complications of pregnancy. There are still a lot of other things that can happen to you during pregnancy, and that will encompass your normal accident or sickness. 
So I think it's really important to still lock in the coverage. Yes, you will have an exclusion rider for pregnancy. Once someone is back to work full-time for 30 days or more, if they had a normal pregnancy without complications, that is an exclusion rider that can be reconsidered or potentially removed. Of course, if a female is not pregnant at the time of application, but they're thinking about it, and they haven't gone through fertility treatments, because that can be an issue as well and lead to an exclusion, I would look to purchase my policy as soon as I could, because it's not a pre-existing condition. And now in the event I do become pregnant and I have a complication of pregnancy, that would be covered the same way as any other accident or sickness. Not a normal pregnancy. I get this a lot. Well, what if I want to have my child and then stay home with them for a couple of months? That you can do. It's just not going to pay disability insurance benefits. Those disability benefits are tied to a medically necessary reason why you're unable to work in your occupation on a full-time basis or why you can still work in your occupation on a limited basis. It's not, I just don't feel like I want to work because I want to stay home postpartum with my child. Mm Mm-hmm. So I've got a couple more questions for you. One is, you know, think of it as like we're talking about residents here. They're just starting out. They only have a small amount of money that they can put towards any insurance. What should they look for in terms of like what should they put more emphasis on? Term, disability, a combo of both? If someone is single, really the only one that they're responsible to is themselves. True. At that point, it's an easy one. They should just buy disability insurance. Now, let's assume for the moment everything you said is the case. They like the idea of disability insurance. They understand the importance. They realize that their health is actually what buys the insurance. The money is what just keeps the insurance in effect. But their budget is extremely limited. I'll make it up. Let's say 30 to $50 a month. There are insurance products where the insurance company will allow them to buy a minimal benefit, let's say $1,000 a month, and still allow them to increase up to fifteen to 20000 a month, never doing another exam, blood test, urine test, or answering any medical questions. Now, that is not my normal recommendation, but given the choice of buying nothing because I feel that I can't afford something that's reasonable, or putting in a little bit of money to lock in my future ability to purchase coverage when I feel I either really need it or I can better afford it, makes an awful lot of sense. I literally call this my lease with the option to buy plan. Mm. If I'm married and I have children, there's really nothing to discuss. They need coverage. And God forbid something happens to this person, their family is going to be in a lot of trouble financially if they don't have life insurance. And given the choice of putting money into a 401k or a 403b or a 457 or an IRA, At this stage of our life, putting that money in a year or two earlier is not going to be the difference between retiring successfully or not. But not having appropriate insurance in force literally can be all the difference in the world. I mean, if you think about it from a very basic sense, disability insurance protects our paycheck. If we're working because we need the income to develop a lifestyle for ourselves and our family, pay down debt, fund for college, fund for retirement and I am not financially independent, I need disability insurance. It's that simple. The same thing is true for life insurance. If I have dependents and I have someone that is relying on my ability to earn an income and bring money into the household, 
I need life insurance. Now, we can make an argument, a very real argument, if I'm in a dual physician household and we have no kids, I probably don't even need life insurance. You know, my spouse would go on, they'll continue to practice medicine, and they'll do very well. And as much as they will want to grieve for me and there'll be a real loss, financially, it's negligible. But once I have others that depend upon my income for their lifestyle, it's non-negotiable. It should be done. And you'd be surprised how many people I run into that are in these situations. And it's almost like they don't know what they don't know. And they should have disability insurance and they should have life insurance. And they believe that this is very expensive, but they can purchase products to protect themselves and their families at a really, really low cost as a building block for the future. Yeah. I'd almost push back on you a little bit though with the dual physician, no kids not having coverage only because let's just say they were two pediatricians. I can speak firsthand. I know pediatricians aren't really well compensated compared to let's say a surgeon. And if one of the spouses became disabled and required more time and more money and more effort from the other spouse that took away from their job, they're already not earning six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars. So you lost mm-hmm. half of your income. Let's say they were both making two hundred. The second spouse that's the healthy one has to scale back just to take care of their other spouse. Disability could really help there in that sense. There's not even a question in my mind. You know, it'd really be just be more on the life insurance side that if we have no kids, True. one of us passes away. Disability is ultra important. Believe it or not, one of the insurance companies in their product as a built-in feature has what's called a family care benefit that allows a policyholder that's not disabled but needs to take time off to care for their loved one can actually collect benefits up to a certain limited basis to stay at home with a family member. So if they have a loss of income of 20% or more, because they, the healthy individual, need to reduce their work hours to care for a loved one that's sick, their policy will actually pay them. Yeah, I'd be curious to see how much that costs in premium and how that kind of offsets. How long would you be paying? I mean, there's all sorts of math you can do around yeah, there's, there's Believe it or not, it's a no-cost rider that's built into uh. the policy. It's not available in all states, but it is a really, really nice feature. And if someone was looking towards that insurance company anyway, or they were comparing two of them, mm-hmm. that literally could be a deciding factor in a physician household. Because as a physician, not only are you looked upon as the son or the daughter or the husband or the wife, you're also looked at as potentially the caregiver. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Larry, thank you so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. This was fascinating. I think listeners are going to get a ton of benefit out of this. Real briefly, can you just tell us, tell them, I should say, how they can get a hold of you if they have questions or want policy reviews or if they're looking for policies? How can they get a hold of you? Absolutely. So very, very easy to reach. You know, if they want to chat, they can certainly call. It's 516-677-6211. You know, that's my local number. I also have a toll-free number, which is 800-481-6447. They can certainly visit my website, www.physician, no S on the end, financialservices, all spelled out, dot com. Or they can easily send me an email. It's lkeller, L-K-E-L-L-E-R, at physicianfinancialservices.com. Thank you, buddy. Thanks so much for having me. 
All right. Well, that was awesome. Larry, thank you again for being on the show. And I really encourage you guys to reach out to Larry if you do have some specific insurance questions that you would like asked, or if you're actually looking for term or disability coverage, Larry's a great resource. And I I highly recommend calling and and reaching out to Larry. Excited uh, that we were able to answer so many of your questions. And I want to wish you guys a uh, great rest of your week. And I'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Financial Residency Podcast. This episode is ended, but your financial residency continues online. Head over to financialresidency.com, where you'll find links to any resources mentioned in today's episode, along with other valuable tips and information that will help you regain your financial freedom. That's financialresidency.com.